Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is White Zombie by Vivian Meek. Jeffrey Aylett, acting commissioner of the Naswazi district, was frightened. During his 20 years in Africa, never before had he experienced the feeling of being so definitely baffled. He felt if something was pressing against him, something that he could neither see nor locate, but nevertheless, something that seemed to envelop him and in some inexplicable way threatened to stifle him. Lately, he had begun to wake suddenly at nights, struggling for breath and almost overcome by a feeling of nausea. After the nausea had disappeared, there still remained a strange suggestion of some nameless, horrible odor, an odor that was strongly reminiscent of the earlier battles of the Mesopotamia campaign. Those had been days of foul disease, when cholera, dysentery, sunstroke, typhoid, and gangrene had raged unchecked, where hundreds had lain where they had fallen, when pressed by enemies and forgotten by friends, the survivors were forced to let even the elementary decencies of death go by the board. He remembered the flies and the corruption and the temperature of 120 degrees. And now... Eighteen years later, that same smell of fetid corruption seemed to hover about him like some evil, invisible presence when he woke at nights. Aylet was, first and foremost, a rational man, accustomed to face facts. His knowledge of the mysteries of Africa, of its depths and jungles, of its eerie atmosphere, was as complete as any man. He smiled whimsically as he emphasized to himself how little that was. And he looked for some concrete reason that would explain the bridging of the years by this horrible harmonic. Failing a satisfactory solution, he would be forced to conclude that it was about time he went home on a long leave. Carefully, as befitted a man of his experience of the ways of the dark, He searched his innermost soul, but failed to find the answer he sought. There was only one connection in the district between him and the Mesopotamia of 1915, a certain John Sinclair, late of the Indian Army. But that connection was already a broken link long before the first appearance of these nauseating nightmares. Sinclair had been a brother officer in the old days, and mainly on Aylet's advice, had taken up a few thousand acres of virgin country in the comparatively unknown Niswadzi district immediately after the war. But he had died more than a year previously. And what was more to the point, had died a natural death. Aylet himself had been present at the passing of his friend. 
being both a mystic as a result of his knowledge of Africa and a logician as a result of his Western upbringing. Aylet methodically considered the platitudinous truth that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy and went over the entire period of his association with Sinclair in every detail. At the end of it all, he was forced to admit failure and indeed judged either logically or mystically there was no adequate reason for linking Sinclair with his present troubles. Sinclair had died peacefully. He even remembered the utter content of the last sigh, as if some great burden had been lifted. It was true that before this, Sinclair, and Aylett himself for that matter, during the first two years of the war, had been through hell that only those who had experienced it could appreciate. It was also true that Sinclair had saved Aylett's life at great risk to his own, on a certain memorable occasion when Aylet, left for dead, had been lying badly wounded in the sun. Aylet had, naturally, never forgotten that, but, being a typical Englishman, had done very little more than shake his friend's hand and mumble something to the effect that he hoped one day there would be an opportunity to repay. Sinclair had waved the matter aside with a laugh as one of no account, merely a job in the day's work. There the incident had ended, and each went about his own lawful occasions. As a settler, St. Clair had been a complete success. In due course, he had married a very capable woman, who, it appeared to Aylet, whenever he had broken journey at the homestead, was eminently suited to the hard existence of a planter's wife. At first, St. Clair had seemed very happy. But as the years passed, Aylet had not been quite so sure. He had had occasion more than once to notice the subtle change for worse in his old friend. Staleness, he diagnosed, and recommended a holiday in England. Lonely plantations far from one's own kind are apt to get on the nerves. Nothing came of his suggestion, however, and then St. Clair stayed on. They'd grown to love the place too well, they said. Though we thought about Sinclair's enthusiasm did not ring true. Anyway, it had not been his business. That was all he could recall in his contemplation, and he repeated again how it had all finished over a year ago. But old memories cling. He found himself living over again that ghastly day after Sistiphon, when Sinclair had literally brought him back to life. He began to wonder, idly, fantastically, the afternoon dimmed to sundown. Sundown gave way to the magic of the night. Still, Aylet made no move to leave the camp chair under the awning of his tent to go to bed. After a while, the last of his boys came up to ask whether he might retire. Aylet answered absently, his eyes on the glowing logs of the campfire. As the hours wore on, he could hear the sound of night drums more distinctly. From all the points of the compass, the sounds came and went. Drum answering drum. The telegraph of the trackless miles that the world called Africa. Lazily, he wondered what they were saying and how exactly they transmitted their news. Strange, he thought. 
that no white man had ever mastered the secret of the drums. Subconsciously, he followed their throbbing monotony. He gradually became aware that the beat had changed. No more was simple news or opinions being transmitted. That much he could understand. There was something else being sent out, something of importance. He suddenly realized that whatever it was, it was apparently regarding as being of vital urgency and that, at least for an hour, the same short rhythm had been repeated. North, south, east, west. The echoes throbbed and throbbed again. The drums started, began to madden him, but there was no way to stop them. He decided to go to bed. But he'd been listening too long, and the rhythm followed him. Eventually, he dropped into a listless, disturbed sleep, during which the implacable staccato throbbing kept hammering away its unreadable message into his subconscious. It seemed only a moment later that he awoke. A malarious mist had rolled up from the swamps below and pervaded his camp. He found himself gasping for breath. He tried to sit up, but the mist seemed to be pressing him down where he lay. No sound issued from his lips when he endeavored to call his boys. He felt himself being steadily submerged. Down. 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 And still down. Just before he lost consciousness, he realized that he was being suffocated. Not by the heavy mist, but by a foul miasma reeking with all the horror of corruption. Ailit looked about him in a bewildered fashion when he opened his eyes again. A kindly bearded face was bending over him and heard a voice that seemed to be coming a great distance that encouraged him to drink something. His head was throbbing violently and his breath came in deep gasps. But the cool water cleared in some measure the foul odor that seemed to cling to his brain. Ah, mon ami, c'est bon. We thought you all dead when the boys brought you in. The bearded face broke into a grin. But now you will be well, eh? You are, what do you say, a tough? Aylet laughed in spite of himself. Why, of course. This was the mission station of the White Fathers and his old friend, Father Vankin, placid and reliable, was looking after him. He closed his eyes happily. Now there was nothing more to fear. Everything would soon be well. Then, as suddenly as it had come, the terrible clinging odor of death and decay left him. But, poultry man... He discussed his horrible experience later. What could have happened? We are both men of some experience of Africa. The missionary shrugged his shoulders. Mon ami, as you implied, this is Africa, and I have no evidence that the curse on Am, the son of Noah, has ever been lifted. The dark forests, they are stronghold of such unconscious spirits, have rebelled and have not yet come out to serve as was first ordained. Who knows? We, I, do not look too deeply there. When I first came out, in my early idealism, I sought but to convert. Now I am content to do mostly the cures for fevers and moons, and hope that le bon Dieu will understand. 
It is the same everywhere, where the cost of Noah carries. Civilizations count not. Regard Adi, I spent 12 years there. Sierra Leone, the Congo, and here. What can I say about your attack by the mist? Nothing. You? Thank you, God, you live here, mon ami. Here in the cradle of Africa. The oldest stronghold of the sons of Am. Ella regarded the missionary intently. Padre, he spoke deliberately. What exactly are you trying to make me understand? The two men, old in the ways of the jungle, faced each other steadily. Mon ami, the priest said quietly, you are my old friend. On the forms of religion, we think differently, you and I. But this is not conventional Europe, thank God. And side by side, we have done our best according to our lights. God himself cannot do more. So I will tell you, I have seen this mist before, twice. Once in Eti, and once in this district. Here, the padre nodded. I was in the camp at the Catchman School for Mrs. Sinclair's estate. Go on, Elliot's voice was low. As you know, Mrs. Sinclair has run the plantation since her husband's death. She refused to go home. At first you, I, all the countryside thought she was mad to stay there alone. But, the missionary shrugged his shoulders. Quel avoue? A woman is a law to herself. Anyway, she has made it greater success than ever. And we are silent. But the mist. I was coming to that. It caught me by the throat that night. I was leaving at the house as we all do when we pass that way. Since all Africa is not a cathedral close. But beyond not knowing anything of what happened for several hours, nothing happened to me. He touched the emblem of his faith on the rosary that was part of his dress. Mrs. Sinclair said that I had been overcome by the heat, but to me that explanation would not do. But that doesn't explain anything. Perhaps not. But Mrs. Sinclair said that she had not noticed anything peculiar. How was that? The priest shrugged his shoulders. I am not Mrs. Sinclair, he said abruptly, and Aylet knew that not another word about her would the missionary say. Tell me about Haiti, Padre, he asked. The priest replied quietly. We understood it there to mean that it was artificially produced by voodoo, black magic. A very real thing, mon ami, which my church readily admit, as you know. And there they call it the breath of the dead. Why? He shrugged his shoulders again. Aylet turned away and looked out steadily into the distance. For a long time he fixed his gaze on the line of distant hills, thinking deeply. He recalled a picture where just hills appeared in the background, a photograph taken by a man who had almost been beyond the borderline to give truth to the world. But he had failed. The picture showed a group of figures. That was all until one had studied them. And even then, 
no one would believe that this was a photograph of dead men who were not allowed to die. For hours, the two men sat silently, each busy with his own thoughts. Night mantled the tiny mission station, and from afar the sound of drums came through on the soft breeze. Alec turned suddenly to the missionary. Padre man, he said quietly. It's only twenty miles from here to the Sinclair estate. The padre nodded. Understand, mon ami, he replied. Then after a moment, Would you think it an impertinence if I asked you to keep this in your pocket till you come back? He produced a small silver crucifix. Aylet held out his hand. Thank you, he said simply. The sun had set when Aylet's Makia was set down on Mrs. Sinclair's veranda. She came forward to welcome him. I wondered if I should ever see you again. She looked at him quietly. You haven't been here since, oh, for over a year now. Then she changed her tone. She laughed. Oh, as district officer, she said, you've neglected your duties shamefully. Aylet smilingly pleaded guilty, excusing himself on the ground that everything had gone so well in this section that he had hesitated to intrude on perfection. Has it fallen from perfection now? she countered. Not at all, he replied. This visit is merely routine. Ah, thank you, she said dryly. Anyway, come in, make yourself comfortable, and tomorrow we will show you a perfect estate. Ayla studied his hosts carefully through dinner. He felt uneasy at what he saw whenever he caught her off guard. He could hardly believe that this was the same woman he had welcomed as a bride a few years ago. The lonely life had hardened her, but he had expected that. There was something more, though, a kind of bitter hardness, he called it, for a want of a better term. After her formal welcome, Mrs. Sinclair spoke very little. She seemed preoccupied with the affairs of the plantation. My very own stake in Africa, she said. Oh, how I love this country. It's magic and mystery. It's vast grandeur. She reminded him how how she had refused to go home. But tomorrow, she said, when he saw her Africa, the plantation, he would understand. Aylet retired early, distinctly puzzled. He had noticed her looking over the swept and garnished tidiness of the plantation before she had said goodnight. She unconsciously stretched out her hands to it in a kind of adoring supplication, and yet in the brilliant moonlight under the sensual adoration, he distinctly noticed the contrast of the hard lines of her face and the bitterness of her mouth. Africa. Exhausted as he was, he slept well. Whether the little cross the Padre had given him had anything to do with it or not, he did not know. But in the morning, he woke more refreshed than he had for weeks. He looked forward to the visit over the estate. Mrs. Sinclair had not exaggerated when she had used the word perfection. 
Fields had been hoed till not a stray blade of grass grew among the crops. Barns stood in serried rows, wood fuel was stacked in the neatest of cords. The orchard and the kitchen garden were luxurious, and the pasture in the miniature home farm was the greenest he had seen in the tropics. For what? His subconscious brain kept hammering at him. Why? And above all, how? Aylet had noticed something only an expert would have seen. There was a great shortage of labor, though such as were dotted about seemed to be very busy. As if she divined his thoughts, Mrs. Sinclair answered them. My boys work, she said, in even tones as she flicked the hippo-wide whip she carried. Aylet raised his eyebrows. Sinclair took no notice of his acknowledgement of her point. Her lips were set hard and she spoke coldly. She continued, It's only a matter of getting to the heart of Africa, the throbbing, beating heart below all of this. Africa has no use for those who do not join their own souls. Suddenly, she realized what she was saying, but before she could change the subject, Aylid took up the question. He matched her tone. Very interesting, he said. But we don't encourage Europeans, especially European women, to go native. The last word, however, was with the woman. All the persacity of officialdom, she murmured. Then she looked Aylid full in the face. Do I sound native? She said harshly. Or look native? Aylid was hardly listening. He was staring at her. Her eyes belied her words, for if ever he saw an expression of masterful, baleful perversion in a human face, he saw it then. He began to understand. He was thankful when the inspection was over, and felt relieved that she did not offer the formal suggestion that he should stay a little longer. Five miles beyond her boundary, he had a biovac tent behind a thorn bush and stored two days' rations in the shade. He sent his safari on at the double to the mission and watched it till it was out of sight. Then he sat down to wait for the night. The heart of Africa, he repeated to himself, but his voice was grim and his eyes flashed with cold anger. It was not until he heard the news drum throb that Aylet retraced his steps along the ill-defined track to the plantation. At the edge of the estate, he merged himself in the shadows of the forest fringe and gradually worked his way along the eucalyptus. He crawled noiselessly as far as the tree that grew in the garden before the homestead. In a little while, he saw Mrs. Sinclair come out onto the veranda. Beside her stood a gigantic man who looked at the some obscene devil, a witch doctor, sinister and grotesque, and naked but for a necklace of human bones dangling and rattling on his enormous chest. Daubs of white clay and red ochre plastered his face, only partly covered by a magnificent leopard skin. The woman stepped down into the clearing and snapped the whip in her hands sounded like a revolver shot. As if it were a signal, Aylet heard the roll of the drums near at hand. 
From one of the barns began the most grotesque procession he had ever seen. The drums throbbed malevolently. The short staccato throb that preceded the fetid mist, which had almost suffocated him. Louder they grew, and louder. The message rolled through the jungles, was caught up and answered again. There was no doubt as to its meaning. He crouched lower when the drums approached, his eyes fixed on the macabre scene before him. Following the drums as regularly as a column on the march moved the men who worked the plantation. In columns of four they moved, heavy-footed and automatic, but they moved. Every now and then the crack of that terrible whip sounded like a pistol shot through the roll of drums. And every now and then, Ayla could see the cruel thong that streaked through flesh. A figure dropped silently, only to pick itself back up and rejoin the column. They marched round the garden. As they came near Ailet, he held his breath. He had to strain every nerve in his body to prevent himself from screaming. Almost as if he were hypnotized, he looked on the dull, expressionless faces of the silent, slow-moving automatons. Faces on which there was not even despair. They simply moved at the command of the whip, as they would shortly move off to their allotted tasks in the field. Bowed and crushed, they passed by him without a sound. The nervous tension nearly broke Alet. And the realization came to him. These pitiful automatons were dead, and they were not allowed to die. The figures in the unbelievable photograph came back to him. The Padre's words, the magic of the voodoo acknowledged as fact by the greatest Christian church in history. The dead who were not allowed to die. Zombies the native called them in hushed voices. And she called it Knowing Africa. A cold terror came over Ailet. The long column was nearing its end. Mrs. Sinclair was walking down the line, her face distorted with perverted thoughts, the foul witch doctor leering over her. She stopped by the tree behind which he crouched. A single bent figure followed the column, with a gasp of horror, Alec recognized Sinclair. Sinclair! Then the whip crashed against the poor thing who had died in his arms. My God! Alec muttered helplessly. It's not possible! But he knew that the witch doctor's voodoo had thrown the impossibility in his face. The whip cracked again hurling the soul-white zombie to the ground. Slowly, it picked itself up, without a sound, without expression, and automatically followed the column. He heard, as in a nightmare, unbelievably foul obscenities fall from the woman's lips, cruel taunts. At the head of the column, the drums throbbed on. Horror gave way at last. Ailet found himself desperately clutching the tiny cross the Padre had given him. With the other hand, he found his revolver and took aim with icy coolness. Four times he fired at point above the leopard skin, 
and twice into the ochred face of the witch doctor. Then he leapt forward, cross in hand, to what had once been Sinclair. The figure was standing silently, bent and expressionless. It made no sign as Aylid approached, but as the crucifix touched it, a tremor shook the frame. The drooping eyelids lifted and the lips moved. You have repaid, they whispered gently. The body swayed slightly and toppled over. Dust to dust, Ayla prayed. In a few moments, all that remained was grayish powder. A troubled year had passed, Ayla remembered with a shudder. Then he turned, and crucifix in hand, walked along the column. The end. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, Visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well. (laughs) 